I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this edition, we are going to catch up, Autumn and I, as we talk all things Omicron, unfortunately, still lingering around. And then later in the pod, Autumn and I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Dr. George Mason. Dr. Mason is the outgoing pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church, just announcing his retirement uh, this last week uh, during the Epiphany time, and we just had a wonderful conversation, learned a lot about him, his background, his past, and his advice for the emerging generation of clergy. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode. We're back, Autumn. We're back. Omicron is taking over. We do not have it in the Randall household, but it's everywhere, sister. It it is everywhere. I um, am wearing my headphones and podcasting right now, but here in a bit, I'm going to put my teacher hat on, which I haven't worn in, you know, more than a decade because I have two doing virtual school. So, you know, we, both of us live in Norman, Oklahoma. The, uh, Email went out, I think, yesterday afternoon, uh, just a school let out. And what did, I mean, how did, how did you feel when you got that email saying that uh, they were going to go back to virtual for a while? The March 2020 of it all, Mitch. <laughs> I was so, like, my stomach just, like, seized up because it starts to feel like, is, are we doing this again? But, okay, here's the thing that I tell myself, right? So I'm... I'm making a fist with one hand and I have a flat hand with the other and I'm covering my fist with my flat hand. This is something my therapist has taught me. Like you're safe. You're okay. We know more now. Most of our family is vaccinated. You know, it's a safer time to do this, but Oklahoma's just plumb out of teachers, Mitch. Like everybody just went down, has a child who's positive or has had a close encounter. And so with the the MLK holiday coming up on Monday, Norman decided to just sort of move to virtual for most campuses for today and tomorrow. And my kids, of course, were thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course they were. You know, it, it, it just it's so infuriating. Uh, it's so frustrating. Uh, obviously, we're in a global pandemic. We've seen different variants of COVID-19 sweep across the globe. This latest variant, obviously, Omicron, is like none other. It's been described to me as a sticky bomb. It's been described to me as a Cinnabon, a cinnamon roll that you can't get off your fingers. It's just so sticky. You get close to it, you're just going to get sticky. Uh, It's just, and we still live in a society where there's misinformation out there, where there is this this attitude of obstinance in wearing masks. Uh, Autumn, I went to CVS, our local CVS here last night to pick up a prescription. Walked in with my N95 mask, you know, just, you know, thinking, okay, this is going to be a safe spot here in this pharmacy. I was the only person besides the pharmacist and the employees wearing a mask. Everybody else in there that were picking up prescriptions, even the even people getting the vaccine were not wearing masks. It was the most bizarre moment in in the last few weeks I've I've had. And it was just it was just infuriating. Even saw a Norman police officer walk through the doors unmasked. It just I just mind blowing to me. It is. Um, number one, thank goodness, the N95 is basically like the full armor of God in the 2020s universe, right? Because it does keep us pretty safe. Um, number two, I'm surprised zero 
about that because um, it wasn't so very long ago that CVS still sold cigarettes. <laughs> so, I mean, they're not really the health standard that you would think a pharmacy might be. Well, that is a great two- point. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, um, have you seen the article from ABC News about line of duty deaths for police officers? You know, we were talking about this uh, before we hit record, and you know, it's just, it's very tragic because, you know, any officer uh, loss of life on duty or off duty, it's tragic. They are, they are out there on the front lines protecting us and keeping our community mm-hmm. safe. We appreciate that. Obviously, there are some dirty cops uh, out there that we've talked about on this show before uh, with racial profiling and, and just systemic racism within policing itself but there's this, some cultural issues sure there's some cultural right? issues there but for the most part yeah. i mean these are these are good men and women doing good work for us since in serving their community and it was reported uh just this last week 400 and, or 458 law enforcement deaths uh on in line of duty were reported in 2021 and out of that 485 get this autumn 301 of them were due to covid 19 And I, it, no one can see this, but I'm shaking my head. <laughs> I just, it just is mind blowing. I don't, you know, some of these mm-hmm. uh, police unions, you know, are kicking back on vaccine mandates, uh, mask mandates. Uh, you know, city officials are, you know, supporting those decisions. And those decisions are killing cops. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. just infuriating. And, they're risking their lives all the time and to not be taken seriously to the point where they are keeping being kept safe from a virus that caused a majority of their deaths last year. It's just, it's just mind blowing to me. And I just, it it is mind blowing and it can, it, it all comes back to number one, the politicization Mm -hmm. of COVID, right? right? And then all of the subsequent misinformation. You know, if wearing a mask is a political stand, then I'm against it, you know, and to my own detriment. Like, are you, and folks are like literally willing to risk their lives mm-hmm. and the lives of their children over a political statement. And that's what Dr. Schmidtke talked about uh, last week that, you know, right. a vaccine, a mask, uh, a vaccine doesn't, you know, none of the care, the virus, they don't care about your political stance. You know, we just have to listen to the experts on this. Yeah. I wonder what uh, some of those uh, police unions would say if there was a movement to take away a bulletproof vest. Right. You know, to me. Or just make them optional. They're just like real optional. Right. I mean, if you want it, great. But yeah. like, you know, sure. it probably won't save your life. Yeah. That's just what, you know, that's what I equate that to. I mean, again, these men and women are risking their lives every day doing some incredible work. Let's take care of them. And, you know, there's going to be those who do wear masks, who take precautions. But if your coworker and fellow officer does not wear that and you're, you know, in a locker room or you're in the, the station somewhere and it's just everywhere, you know, you're going to get it. And it just, it's just, yeah. it, it's maddening. So, you know, shout out yeah. to all of our police officers who are doing great work. We appreciate you. We love you. Um, I wish, I wish, wish, wish uh, that uh, I would see more officers wearing masks 
uh, not only here yeah. in Oklahoma, but across the country. So, And if you are a person who is, you know, helping to spread the false narrative about vaccines and masks and you're, you know, shaming folks who wear them and that kind of thing, there is literal blood on your hands, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, another thing going on in uh, the news this week, Autumn, is uh, MLK Day is right around the corner. Um, there has been a big push in Washington, D.C. to get a voter, a new Voting Rights Act uh, uh, legislation passed named after the late civil rights icon and congressman from Georgia, John Lewis. And right now it's not looking good, Autumn, that uh, that, that legislation is not going to pass uh Probably the Senate. Uh, I think it will pass the House along party lines, but uh, not certain it's going to make its way through the Senate uh, with 50-50 split. You know, I wrote an article today about uh, voting rights and how white supremacy throughout the history of the United States has played a role in voter restrictions and voter oppression. And every time I go through that history, I'm still amazed about how long it took for people that were born in this country, on this land, to to vote and to have the right to vote and for legislation to have to be passed that prevented people from jockeying uh, local rules and, you know, to to prevent people from casting their vote. It was just, it's just really, you know, really sad to, to see that's part of our history. It is part of our history, but it's because of that history, mm-hmm. we need new legislation. Uh, because, of, I mean, there are almost, almost all, almost in every state in, the, in, the, in America is dealing with some kind of legislation right now that is going to make it more difficult to vote. And those pieces of legislation are based upon, we talk about uh, uh, Omicron and COVID-19 misinformation. This, too, is based upon misinformation. There were very, very few cases of voter fraud in 2020. In fact, the cases where there were voter fraud had a lot to do with more conservative uh, fraud than it did liberal fraud. But all you would hear from the right is how... Democrats and how liberals are just committing fraud right and left. And that's just not the case. And even in our conservative states and even some of our Republican governors have said, yeah, that there was no fraud in this election. But because that message lingers in the air, those same Republican governors, those same Republican-controlled legislatures across the country are using that to push voter oppression and voter restrictions, making it more difficult for people to vote. And it's just infuriating. Why are you so scared? Why are you so scared of, you know, adequate representation of equal access, you know, access to voting? It's, it's just, it's just oppression. It's it really is. And, and, and it's fear. And in, in my article today at goodfaithmedia.org, you know, I ask a, a set of a, a kind of a litany of questions. And one of the questions yeah. was, is there a holiday that we celebrate right now that commemorates that wonderful moment when we voted 
to restrict people casting their ballots? <laughs> I, I don't remember that at all. I do remember from my history classes all the celebrations of when people got to cast their votes uh, and yeah. made it easier for them to vote. I remember all of those great uh, those great moments in history, but I don't I don't I don't well, think. There is a holiday that we're celebrating. It's January 6th, right? Oh, that's sort of right. Voter that's right. oppression. I don't know. Yeah. Trying yeah. to disqualify the votes, right? That's right. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, the King family came out uh, this week and, and said they don't think people should celebrate MLK Day unless there is a voter rights uh, bill yeah. ready for the president yeah. to sign. Uh, they feel that strongly about it. And I agree. I mean, it's, it, it is really scary what's going on across the country. Uh, that there is a minority group of people attempting, and it, 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 it's a coup. I mean, it really is a legislative mm-hmm. coup to try to control the votes uh, and how people cast their votes and in what manner they cast their votes so that they can, they can continue to gain control. And the reason for that is because they do not have the popular vote. Never will, because... It's restrictive. It is fundamentalism. It's right-wing uh, nonsense. And if you were to count all the votes in a proper way, then they're going to lose. Yeah. But they have to manipulate. Yep. They have to manipulate manipulate the system in order to win. And it's just it's just infuriating. It is, and we are famously a country that is mo- that is supposed to be run, you know, of the people and by the people, and by the people means all the people, right. not just the, you know, the elite who think they need to run things. That's, that's not the way that we run things here. Famously so. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so I hope uh, that uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, comes to fruition. Uh, I hope our congressmen, both senators and representatives, uh, they come to their senses. The president gets to sign a bill, and we get to celebrate once again that people— uh, it's easier for people to cast their vote because that's yeah. what it means to be American. And so uh, I hope that comes to fruition. Well, Autumn, you and I got to sit down with Dr. George Mason this week. Uh, Dr. Mason is the pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He's been there for 30 years now. But uh, this last epiphany, he announced his retirement. And I asked him during the interview, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. George Mason doesn't retire. (laughs) And uh, we had a a lot of fun with uh, George talking about his career and uh, his time at Wilshire. And he also provides some really sage advice for emerging clergy as he looks uh, to the future of the church and the future of Wilshire in particular. So it's a great interview. Stay tuned. Uh, Here's our conversation with Dr. George Mason. I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and find us online at Good Faith Media. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us and a close friend of mine. George Mason has been senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church since August 1989. His long tenure follows the pattern of his predecessor, Bruce McKeever, who was pastor of Wilshire for 30 years also. 
George is a nationally recognized religious leader serving the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Fellowship Southwest, Pastors for Texas Children, and Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square. He is the lead advisor for the Baptist House of Studies at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. He is a frequent op-ed contributor to the Dallas Morning News on subjects of public interest, the interest religion, such as public education, race relations, and predatory lending. He is also the founder and president of Faith Commons, a multi-ethnic, multi-faith organization committed to bringing bringing faith to life by promoting the common good. As part of his work with Faith Commons, he hosts an audio and video podcast, Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. And you can find that podcast at thegoodgodproject.com. That's www.goodgodproject.com. On Epiphany this last year, Dr. Mason announced his pending retirement as the pastor at Wilshire beginning later in the year. Mason is married to his remarkable wife, Kim. They have three wonderful adult children and six amazing grandchildren. Dr. Mason was influential in the creation of Good Faith Media, and he is a good friend of mine. With all of that said, Dr. Mason, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much, Mitch. And now, after listening to all of that, I realize all the more why I'm retiring. <laughs> I have to let go of something, right? Uh, that's exhausting. Yeah. My goodness. Oh, that's fantastic. So uh, what's so funny about that's my first question. My first question is, what are you thinking? George Mason is not <laughs> supposed to retire. Yeah. I mean, come on. You're just supposed to go on and go on and go on. Uh, Right. Well, I, I think the answer to that is I would like to go on and go on and go <laughs> on. Um, but in, in all the roles uh, that have um, that go along with that, I think uh, it's uh, it's becoming uh, increasingly challenging to manage it all and to stay healthy and to find a rhythm. And that's a, a nice byproduct or a, a result, I suppose. <laughs> of what I think has been um, uh, way leading on to way, where uh, I've just stayed really interested in all the things that are happening here at our church and in the community, in the wider Baptist world, in theological education, uh, in ecumenical and interfaith work. And, you know, so I keep becoming more and more invested in all of that. And it's uh, actually not fair to uh, anyone uh, for me to um, not give my best efforts uh, mm. to to everything. So uh, the the thing that I think I needed to make a decision about was what has to go. And sure. uh, after 33 years nearly here, uh, I think it's time to hand it over to somebody else as senior pastor. There you go. So we are going to focus most of our conversation on your last 30 years at Wilshire, but there were some significant years prior to that. Let's talk a little bit about your early career. You grew up in New York, attended college in Florida, went to the Southern Baptist Seminary in Texas, and pastored a church in the South. What was it like for you as a young man finding your way in the world? What an interesting question, Autumn. Thank you. I think. Um, I came from a very devout Christian home, and my brother and sister and I all have a good spiritual heritage, uh, and we all have strong self-esteem and have found ourselves in leadership roles in different areas 
of life. And so uh, the foundation was really great from my family and religious upbringing. Um, I, I would say that like so many other people who grew up in a more conservative evangelical uh, home and church life, I had to uh, wrestle with uh, whether that was going to be a stable identity for me or whether I, I was going to um, move in different ways uh, in terms of how I understood theology and ministry and church life uh, in relationship to the world. Clearly, I've done that. And I was aided by that in some way by growing up in New York uh, because it was a very religiously diverse environment, uh, obviously, ethnically and religiously. Uh, and my family of origin also had lots of family uh, in uh, the Lutheran Church. Mm. So I uh, had a lot of experience there. I went to a Lutheran school through the eighth grade, learned my creeds and my German hymns, right? So uh, I, I had... Uh, I, I'm at home in the more mainline church Protestant tradition, and I was at home in the evangelical gospel-oriented tradition. And I think throughout the course of my life, Autumn, I've found a way to straddle both of those worlds mm -hmm. and ask what are the good things to hold uh, from both of them, and then to let go of the others. So that's been mm -hmm. a growing uh, matter of my own identity as a Christian and as a minister uh, and, and as a leader of, uh, of a Baptist congregation. Now, Church, I remember years ago, you and I were on the golf course uh, because, you know, of course we were. And, uh, <laughs> and It's a tough job as a pastor, but someone has to do right. it. Thank you yeah, very that's much. Right. Ministry takes place everywhere. So uh, <laughs> uh, we were having this conversation, and I remember you telling me kind of about your life story and that, you know, you went to Southwestern Seminary, you got a Master's of Divinity, and then you got a PhD in Systematic Theology, um, and that you really thought you were headed on an academic track uh, to maybe teach right. at a university or a seminary. And mm -hmm. that changed for you. Um, tell us a little bit about that transformation of the mindset of head, heading into academia, but then finding yourself in the local church context. I wasn't sure it was going to be a mutually exclusive thing, Mitch, as you know, that uh, the Southern Baptist seminaries uh, and um, our our churches were uh, well connected uh, back in those days, and there was a lot of movement back and forth and uh, teaching adjunctively and things of that nature. Uh, I did get a PhD in, a, in an era when uh, the tall steeple pastors, you might say, uh, almost all had PhDs. Mm -hmm. That's actually rare today. But there was, uh, during the period of time I was in seminary, a uh, desire on the part of Southern Baptists to have uh, a, a real uh, educated clergy uh, and, um, and I would say, academically oriented uh, leadership in some of our uh, top churches. And so uh, it, it, it was encouraged that some of us go on and get PhDs, 
without necessarily expecting that we would teach with them. That's really not true today right. uh, in, in, in our culture. Uh, so in doing so, I didn't necessarily believe I would be teaching in a seminary setting or a university setting, but I, I did know that I loved the life of the mind and I loved the academic world and I wanted to actually be prepared for that if that was where my calling would be. What I found, though, is that teaching is an important part of the pastoral role, mm. mm-hmm. and that it it comes out in preaching, of course, but there are other ways that we teach in the congregation. And so I found myself enjoying that and loving the rhythm of church life. Um, you know, when when you're when you're teaching, there is a sense that you're, yes, you change from semester to semester and year to year a little bit, uh, and you're growing in your scholarship and whatnot, but you're basically teaching the same classes over and over again. Uh, for most of us who are preaching, it's it's new every Sunday. Yeah, sure. And uh, it's it, to me, it was always fun to think about uh, that I got to think about the world and think about a text and uh, and not be repeating myself a great deal. That it, it, I felt like I was growing more in the church than I would have maybe necessarily in the academy. Right. Mm-hmm. So, George, a kid out of New York, college-educated, yeah. uh, college football player at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. You go to seminary in Fort Worth, and then you spend some time at a church in the South. Was it Alabama? Was the church? Yes, Mobile. Yeah. Mobile, mm-hmm. yeah. And a church comes calling. Now, we all recognize the calling and voice of God in this process. Mm-hmm. But 30 years ago, George, what drew you to this congregation in North Dallas? It, it, it actually is almost mystical, um, Midge, in that... Uh, I was talking with a church in Birmingham uh, at the time that Wilshire was looking for a pastor. And I really loved this church in Birmingham. And Kim and I had gone up to uh, visit them, uh, and, and they made an offer and wanted to bring it to the church. And I said that we would consider it, and they gave me till three o'clock on Sunday. Uh, We found ourselves driving down I-65 back to Mobile that weekend, and uh, Kim and I were looking at each other as we were driving, and there were tears, and we loved that church, and yet we felt like somehow we couldn't go there. Uh, At three o'clock on Sunday, I I I told the committee that I didn't really understand why, but something in me said it wasn't right, and I needed to say no. Before the clock struck four that Sunday afternoon, the chair of the search committee at Wilshire called for the first time. Wow. Um, Wilshire had been a church when I was in Texas, uh, was one of the few churches I had thought, you know, if they ever— were interested, I'd sure like to talk to them. I, I think that would be the kind of place for me. And so 
I had, they weren't on my radar. I just knew they were looking. And I admit that I was hoping uh, that they would contact me. And it just so happened. Um, but part of that is I'm a city kid. Mm. And uh, I, I came from New York, uh, New York City, college in Miami, Florida. And I, I had a wonderful four years in Mobile, but Mobile was not really who I am. And uh, Dallas is Texas, but I would say it's more of an American city, uh, yeah. somewhat than than uh, typical of Texas. So uh, it fits me pretty well. You almost sound like Tex Shram there. It's uh, you know America's team. It's America's city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a native Texan, I can agree with what you say, Mitch. You don't understand because you were born north of the Red True, River. True, true, true. Yeah. <laughs> so, as someone who is editing each week, a pastor who is no longer in the pulpit, um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you feel about stepping away from the pulpit. Because, as you said earlier, you know, experiencing. God's word as a lens over the life that you're walking with this congregation each week is such a special place. So tell me a little bit about how you're feeling about that. Uh, I'm going to miss it. Period. Mm -hmm. The even the thrill, it's not just the thrill of the moment of standing there and delivering the sermon. As you say, there, there is a spiritual discipline about the preparation each week that has been part of my spiritual life, and I have really enjoyed that process. I do think that the one thing that I will most enjoy, though, is not having the deadline mm -hmm. every week. So the first part of that word is very apt, dead line. Uh, there, there is a kind of pressure about knowing that it's coming. And uh, I, I think I've felt that for, all, you know, 33 years here, nearly 40 years, I guess, of ministry, uh, preaching almost every week. And I, I think I'm ready to let somebody else feel that uh, deadline and look forward to the weekend with less uh, stress. <laughs> Yeah. You know, Church, I'm glad you said that because uh, when I stepped uh, into my role at Baptist Center for Ethics, Not Good Faith Media, that was one question that people often ask me, you know, what, what is, what's so different about this current job and the week-to-week -week grind of being a pastor? And it was easy for me. It, it was the clock. The clock is always yep. ticking to Sunday morning. And right. it, it took about a year for that clock to begin to dissipate and for me to realize that, oh, I don't have to have everything ready to go Sunday morning. And it, it was, but now that it's, it's happened, it's glorious. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> clock, the clock is nowhere yeah. to be found. So, yeah. uh, well, and sort of like how water runs downhill, a pastor will find a pulpit, retired <laughs> or not, he will find one. Uh, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. Uh, <laughs> well, that may be true. I, I'm, I'm willing to preach elsewhere, of course, but I will say, and this is partly just because of the church I have been lucky enough to pastor for all these years, I've never felt as much satisfaction preaching to other people as I have to my own congregation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we have benefited from your pulpit ministry for years. Uh, when I was 
when Missy and I were, and the boys were living in uh, Fort Worth, I was pastoring at First Baptist Church, Bedford, Texas, in the mid-cities between Fort Worth and Dallas. Uh, each and every morning on our way into town, we'd be listening to NPR, the local affiliate there, and we would hear George Mason deliver his sermon. And it was always a week late because of the delay, uh, but it was such a blessing. And Missy still considers you one of her pastors because for six mm-hmm. years she listened to you. And then she had to listen to me. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, thanks for the setup there, George. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, she grew up on the radio of, uh, of George Mason and Kid Craddock. Right? <laughs> well, that's that true. The, the that's, duo that's, running that's, Dallas. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, uh, so, You've announced your retirement. 30 years ago, you stepped into a pulpit that had been occupied by your predecessor, Bruce McKeever, for 30 years. What is your hope for the church and the next pastor? That I will be as good to my successor as my predecessor was to me. My um, predecessor, Bruce McKeever, was a great friend to me. He was generous. Uh, He knew how to remind people that I was his pastor, and he did not criticize me, even if I'm sure there were many opportunities he must have uh, thought, okay, I better hold my tongue. Uh, he, He really was a great friend, and What Bruce did was to give the congregation also a gift, and that is he didn't make Wilshire choose between the two of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, The church was able to love us both, and I think that's what I really want to do with my successor. Bruce was pastor emeritus at Wilshire for my first 12 years before his death. So we had plenty of time to work that out. And uh, some of the way we did it was for Bruce to uh, continue to do things like memorial services and weddings. Some of the time we would do them together. And sometimes um, I would just say, why don't you take this one? And uh, it 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 was it was the kind of thing where he didn't have to go away uh, or disappear, or um, I didn't need for him to be less in order for me to be more, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it it made the handoff a lot easier, even though Bruce and I were very different personalities. Uh, our leadership styles very different, and the church had to adjust to that as well. Uh, and so, I'm going to try to prepare the church for that same kind of handoff, uh, which also is to say that we're not going to have an interim pastor. Uh, we're going to try to move through this. I'm not going to. There is going to be a buffer period with guest preachers, um, but. Uh, we have a wonderful staff that can handle the interim period without bringing someone uh, in uh, to create another shift in sure. style and leadership. 
That's great. Well, I mean, I, I, you, you've always spoken finally about uh, Bruce McKeever, and I know that you're going to be just as gracious and wonderful to your successor, and uh, it's going to be an exciting time. It's going to be a, a time of sadness to see you step away from the pulpit. The church is going to celebrate your 30 years of ministry with them, but uh, it's also going to be an exciting time to see the new era of Wilshire begin in the next few years. So thanks. Thank you for those words. You're welcome. So you- you told us a little bit about your hope for, for your church, for Wilshire, but I'm going to ask you about the broader church, the church. Um, let's just zoom in on North America. I think that's a big enough scope for us. Uh, <laughs> over um, the past three decades of public ministry, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen and experienced when it comes to church, faith, and culture? Well, certainly, I think uh, the more recent uh, years have brought to the fore many of the things that had um, been beneath the surface in the American church, and we weren't uh, aware of just uh, how uh, unsuccessful we had been in being honest with ourselves about the lingering problems of white supremacy and racism, uh, the failure to um, hold ourselves accountable for the history of our participation in America's marginalizing of uh, Native American people, Mitch, um, not just because you're on this uh, <laughs> call, but. Um, but also women and immigrants and um, LGBTQ folk and just how much the church had served to prop up a, a culture of privilege of uh, white Christian Americans. I, I think um, rather than following uh, the script of the Jesus narrative that comes uh, from our New Testament and is a continuation of the story of Israel that I think, by the way, is also crucial for us to connect the dots to, uh, rather than seeing our role as extending this uh, realm of God in such a way that everyone feel as if they have a, a place next to everyone else where they can flourish uh, as being children of God. We reinforced the marginalization of, of, of folk. Uh, and I think it was, um, it, it, it has now become obvious that we had done so. Uh, the second thing would be our Christian nationalism, that uh, we, we have seen how much we have identified our uh, Christian faith with America as uh, somehow chosen by God and special, exceptional. Uh, we may be exceptional in certain ways in terms of the history of nations where we have um, you know, birth democracy and uh, fought for individual liberties and things of that nature, but that doesn't make us exceptional in the sense that we are unaccountable um, for 
uh, our moral ills. And somehow we, uh, the church has uh, confused the, the uh, realm of God with uh, the American regime. And I think that's been a, a deeply problematic compromise of the gospel and our identity. So uh, these are a couple of things I think that we are coming to understand, and uh, I'm hopeful we will continue to address. George, I'm going to ask you two more questions before I turn you over to Autumn for our very final question that we ask every guest. And these are personal in nature, but I'm going to ask them in the context that I want you to answer them, hoping that the next generation of clergy learn from your career and uh, your, your three decades of ministry. The first one is this. What's the greatest regret that you have as a minister looking back upon your career now in light of hoping the next generation can learn from that regret? And the second is the opposite of that. What do you see as your greatest achievement that you can hand off to the next generation of clergy? Wonderful questions. Uh, I think my greatest regret is how long it took me to change my mind on LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Um, I would say that I wrestled with that question for many, many years, um, but it took me too long to admit to myself that my, uh, my understanding of the gospel required that I take another look at my hermeneutics biblically and realize that I was um, not being consistent in uh, the way I understood the gospel and the movement of God's spirit in the world. And I was trying to find a way uh, to um, preserve the institutions that I served while wrestling with my understanding of this matter. And I finally came to the conclusion uh, that I was part of the problem if I uh, didn't uh, take a stand about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's my greatest regret. Sure. Uh, I, I, guess, um, I, I guess the thing that I would say generally involves that, uh, but isn't limited to that. And that is um, the thing that I'm most proud of that I think I would urge people to recognize uh, who are uh, in positions like mine is that um, the things that we fear most about taking uh, positions uh, prophetically on moral uh, issues of our society uh, are, uh, once we do, we find that uh, those fears were not worth uh, capitulating to, that um, taking a stand for justice and love and grace uh, that is consistent with the gospel uh, is good for our soul too, uh, good for everyone. And because we will feel as though we are on the side of the gospel, um, the spiritual well being that comes from that 
uh, is uh, something that many people don't actually consider when they're fearful of, of speaking out. Uh, so that, in other words, there's an opportunity cost not to speaking out. Yeah. Uh, you, you lose the opportunity to experience the blessing of God's presence in your life and the joy of meeting new people and seeing uh, how their lives are changed by the church's welcome of them. Uh, the surprise that happens in the community when people of color or people who have been otherwise uh, left out feel as though the church is actually speaking for them for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an extraordinary joy mm -hmm. that I think we miss out on when we don't step up and, and speak out. Well, George Mason, senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church, for at least a few more months, also uh, the uh, uh, one of the founders and hosts of audio and video podcast, Good God. You can find more about that at goodgodproject.com. If you're interested in about Wilshire, if you live around the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth area and want to visit uh, Wilshire, you can uh, check them out. Google Wilshire Baptist Church. It's a wonderful, wonderful congregation that you'll certainly want to attend and uh, and visit. Well, before we let you go, George, we ask one question of all of our guests, and Autumn has the distinct pleasure of asking it. So, Autumn, take it away. As you know, as someone who basically named Good Faith Media, our tagline <laughs> is uh, there's more to tell. So in light of all of our discussion today and your incredible work, what is your more to tell? That just because you might plan to retire from a particular job or role doesn't mean that you don't have more to tell. Uh, mm. That there's more life. Uh, past uh, the job you hold currently, the decision you make to leave one thing and move to another, and that you should uh, you should be thinking about as much about where you're going to as what you're going from. And so uh, that's true for people who are rest wrestling with retirement questions, uh, but I think it's true all during the course of our life. There is a bias in the Christian faith toward the future, uh, toward the Spirit's call to us to what is next and what is new and what is more. And we should look to participate in that and wonder what more we can tell uh, in the future, regardless of our role. That's lovely. Well, you heard it first here, folks. We are not pronouncing a benediction on George's career. We're offering an invitation uh, for it to continue. <laughs> so, uh, George, thank you so much. It's always a delight to visit with you. Please send Kim our love and the best of luck to you, my friend. And I can't wait to see you next time. Thanks so much, Mitch and Autumn, and we're so proud of all the work Good Faith Media is doing. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining in this week. Until Autumn and I are back next week, keep living good faith. <laughs>